Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 4, Chapter 5 of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson Book 4, Chapter 5 Earl Risingham Earl Risingham, although by far the most important person then in Shoreby, was poorly lodged in the house of a private gentleman upon the extreme outskirts of the town. Nothing but the armed men at the doors, and the mounted messengers that kept arriving and departing, announced the temporary residence of a great lord. Thus it was that, from lack of space, Dick and Lawless were clapped into the same apartment. "'Well spoken, Master Richard,' said the outlaw. "'It was excellently well spoken, and, for my part, I thank you cordially. Here we are in good hands. We shall be justly tried.' and sometime this evening decently hanged on the same tree. "'Indeed, my poor friend, I do believe it,' answered Dick. "'Yet have we a string to our bow,' returned Lawless. "'Ellis Duckworth is a man out of ten thousand. He holdeth you right near his heart, both for your own and for your father's sake. And knowing you guiltless of this fact, he will stir earth and heaven to bear you clear.' "'It may not be.' said Dick. What can he do? He hath but a handful. Alack, if it were but to-morrow, could I but keep a certain tryst an hour before noon to-morrow? All were, I think, otherwise. But now there is no help. Well, concluded Lawless, and you will stand to it for my innocence. I will stand to it for yours, and that stoutly. It shall not avail us, but an I be to hang, it shall not be for lack of swearing. And then, while Dick gave himself over to his reflections, the old rogue curled himself down into a corner, pulled his monkish hood about his face, and composed himself to sleep. Soon he was loudly snoring, so utterly had his long life of hardship and adventure blunted the sense of apprehension. It was long afternoon, and the day was already failing— before the door was opened and Dick taken forth and led upstairs to where, in a warm cabinet, Earl Risingham sat musing over the fire. On his captive's entrance he looked up. "'Sir,' he said, "'I knew your father, who was a man of honour, and this inclineth me to be the more lenient. But I may not hide from you that heavy charges lie against your character. You do consort with murderers and robbers.' Upon a clear probation ye have carried war against the king's peace. Ye are suspected to have piratically seized upon a ship. Ye are found skulking with a counterfeit presentment in your enemy's house. A man is slain that very evening. And it like you, my lord, Dick interposed, I will at once avow my guilt, such as it is. I slew this fellow Rudder, 
and to the proof, searching in his bosom, here is a letter from his wallet. Lord Risingham took the letter, and opened and read it twice. "'Ye have read this?' he inquired. "'I have read it,' answered Dick. "'Are ye for York or Lancaster?' the Earl demanded. "'My lord, it was but a little while back that I was asked that question, and knew not how to answer it,' said Dick. "'But having answered once, I will not vary. My lord, I am for York.' The Earl nodded approvingly. "'Honestly replied,' he said. "'But wherefore, then, deliver me this letter?' "'Nay, but against traitors, my lord, are not all sides arrayed?' cried Dick. "'I would they were, young gentlemen,' returned the Earl. "'And I do, at least, to prove your saying. There is more youth than guile in you, I do perceive. And were not Sir Daniel a mighty man upon our side?' I were half tempted to espouse your quarrel, for I have inquired, and it appears ye have been hardly dealt with, and have much excuse. But look ye, sir, I am, before all else, a leader in the Queen's interest, and though by nature a just man, as I believe, and leaning even to the excess of mercy, yet must I order my goings for my party's interest, and, to keep Sir Daniel, I would go far about. My lord, returned Dick, ye will think me very bold to counsel you, but do you count upon Sir Daniel's faith? Methought he had changed sides intolerably often. Nay, it is the way of England. What would ye have? the earl demanded. But ye are unjust to the knight of Tunstall, and, as faith goes, in this unfaithful generation, he hath of late been honourably true to us of Lancaster. Even in our last reverses he stood firm. "'And it pleased you, then,' said Dick, "'to cast your eye upon this letter, you might somewhat change your thought of him.' And he handed to the Earl Sir Daniel's letter to Lord Wensleydale. The effect upon the Earl's countenance was instant. He lowered like an angry lion, and his hand, with a sudden movement, clutched at his dagger. "'Ye have read this also?' he asked. "'Even so,' said Dick. "'It is your lordship's own estate he offers to Lord Wensleydale?' "'It is my own estate, even as you say,' returned the Earl. "'I am your beadsman for this letter. It hath showed me a fox's hole. Command me, Master Shelton. I will not be backward in gratitude.' And to begin with, York or Lancaster, true man or thief, I do now set you at freedom. Go, a Mary's name, but judge it right that I retain and hang your fellow, Lawless. The crime hath been most open, and it were fitting that some open punishment should follow. My lord, I make it my first suit to you to spare him also, pleaded Dick. "'It is an old condemned rogue, thief, and vagabond, Master Shelton,' said the Earl. "'He hath been gallows-ripe this score of years. And whether for one thing or another, whether to-morrow or the day after, where is the great choice?' "'Yet, my lord, it was through love to me that he came hither,' answered Dick, "'and I were churlish and thankless to desert him.' "'Master Shelton, ye are troublesome,' replied the Earl severely. "'It is an evil way to prosper in this world. 
Howbeit, and to be quit of your importunity, I will once more humour you. Go then together, but go warily, and get swiftly out of Shoreby town. For this Sir Daniel, whom may the saints confound, thirsteth most greedily to have your blood. My lord, I do now offer you in words my gratitude, trusting at some brief date to pay you some of it in service, replied Dick as he turned from the apartment. End of chapter Book Four, Chapter Six of the Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Four, Chapter Six. Our Blaster Again. When Dick and Lawless were suffered to steal, by a back way, out of the house where Lord Risingham held his garrison, the evening had already come. They paused in shelter of the garden wall to consult on their best course. The danger was extreme. If one of Sir Daniel's men caught sight of them and raised the view halloo, they would be run down and butchered instantly. And not only was the town of Shoreby a mere net of peril for their lives, but to make for the open country was to run the risk of the patrols. A little way off, upon some open ground, they spied a windmill standing, and hard by that a very large granary with open doors. "'How if we lay there until the night fall?' Dick proposed. And Lawless, having no better suggestion to offer, they made a straight push for the granary at a run, and concealed themselves behind the door among some straw. The daylight rapidly departed, and presently the moon was silvering the frozen snow. Now or never was their opportunity to gain the goat and bagpipes unobserved, and change their tell-tale garments. Yet even then it was advisable to go round by the outskirts, and not run the gauntlet of the marketplace, where in the concourse of people they stood the more imminent peril to be recognized and slain. This course was a long one. It took them not far from the house by the beach, now lying dark and silent, and brought them forth at last by the margin of the harbour. Many of the ships, as they could see by the clear moonshine, had weighed anchor, and, profiting by the calm sky, proceeded for more distant parts. Answerably to this, the rude alehouses along the beach, although in defiance of the curfew law they still shone with fire and candle, were no longer thronged with customers, and no longer echoed to the chorus of sea-songs. Hastily, half-running, with their monkish raiment kilted to the knee, they plunged through the deep snow and threaded the labyrinth of marine lumber, and they were already more than halfway round the harbour when, as they were passing close before an alehouse, the door suddenly opened and let out a gush of light upon their fleeting figures. Instantly they stopped, and made believe to be engaged in earnest conversation. Three men, one after another, came out of the alehouse, and the last closed the door behind him. All three were unsteady upon their feet, as if they had passed the day in deep potations, and they now stood wavering in the moonlight, like men who knew not what they would be after. The tallest of the three was talking in a loud, 
lamentable voice. Seven pieces of as good Gascony as ever a tapster broached,' he was saying. "'The best ship out of the port of Dartmouth. A Virgin Mary parcel gilt. Thirteen pounds of good gold money.' "'I have bad losses, too,' interrupted one of the others. "'I have had losses of mine own, gossip Arblaster. I was robbed at Martinmas of five shillings and a leather wallet well worth ninepence farthing. Dick's heart smote him at what he heard. Until that moment he had not perhaps thought twice of the poor skipper who had been ruined by the loss of the good hope. So careless, in those days, were men who wore arms of the goods and interests of their inferiors. But this sudden encounter reminded him sharply of the high-handed manner and ill-ending of his enterprise and both he and Lawless turned their heads the other way, to avoid the chance of recognition. The ship's dog had, however, made his escape from the wreck, and found his way back again to Shoreby. He was now at Arblaster's heels, and suddenly sniffing and pricking his ears, he darted forward and began to bark furiously at the two sham friars. His master unsteadily followed him. "'Hey, shipmates!' he cried. Have ye ever a penny pie for a poor old shipman, clean destroyed by pirates? I am a man that would have paid for you both a Thursday morning, and now here I be, a Saturday night, begging for a flagon of ale. Ask my man Tom if ye missed out me. Seven pieces of good Gascon wine, a ship that was mine own, and was my father's before me a blessed Mary of plane-tree wood and parcel-gilt, and thirteen pounds in gold and silver. Hey, what say ye? A man that fought the French, too, for I have fought the French. I have cut more French throats upon the high seas than ever a man that sails out of Dartmouth. Come, a penny piece. Neither Dick nor Lawless durst answer him a word, lest he should recognize their voices, and they stood there as helpless as a ship ashore, not knowing where to turn or what to hope. "'Are ye dumb, boy?' inquired the skipper. "'Mates, he added, with a hiccup, "'they be dumb. I like not this manner of discourtesy. For an a man be dumb, so be as he's courteous, he will still speak when he was spoken to, methinks.' By this time the sailor, Tom, who was a man of great personal strength, seemed to have conceived some suspicion of these two speechless figures, and being soberer than his captain, stepped suddenly before him, took Lawless roughly by the shoulder, and asked him with an oath what ailed him that he held his tongue. To this the outlaw, thinking all was over, made answer by a wrestling feint that stretched the sailor on the sand and, calling upon Dick to follow him, took to his heels among the lumber. The affair passed in a second. Before Dick could run at all, Arblaster had him in his arms. Tom, crawling on his face, had caught him by one foot, and the third man had a drawn cutlass brandishing above his head. It was not so much the danger, it was not so much the annoyance, that now bowed down the spirits of young Shelton. It was the profound humiliation to have escaped Sir Daniel, convinced Lord Risingham, and now fall helpless in the hands of this old drunken sailor, 
and not merely helpless, but, as his conscience loudly told him when it was too late, actually guilty, actually the bankrupt debtor of the man whose ship he had stolen and lost. "'Bring him back into the alehouse till I see his face,' said Arblaster. "'Nay, nay,' returned Tom, "'but let us first unload his wallet, lest the other lads cry share.' But though he was searched from head to foot, not a penny was found upon him, nothing but Lord Foxham's signet, which they plucked savagely from his finger. "'Turn me him to the moon,' said the skipper, and taking Dick by the chin, he cruelly jerked his head into the air. "'Blessed Virgin!' he cried. "'It is the pirate!' "'Hey!' cried Tom. "'By the Virgin of Bordeaux!' "'It is the man himself,' repeated Arblaster. "'What sea-thief do I hold you?' he cried. "'Where is my ship? Where is my wine? Hey, have I you in my hands? Tom, give me one end of a cord here. I will so trust me this sea-thief, hand and foot together, like a basting turkey. Mary, I will so bind him up.' and thereafter I will so beat, so beat him. And so he ran on, winding the cord meanwhile about Dick's limbs with the dexterity peculiar to seamen, and at every turn and cross securing it with a knot, and tightening the whole fabric with a savage pull. When he had done, the lad was a mere package in his hands, as helpless as the dead. The skipper held him at arm's length and laughed aloud. Then he fetched him a stunning buffet on the ear, and then turned him about, and furiously kicked and kicked him. Anger rose up in Dick's bosom like a storm. Anger strangled him, and he thought to have died. But when the sailor, tired of this cruel play, dropped him all his length upon the sand, and turned to consult with his companions, he instantly regained command of his temper. Here was a momentary respite. Ere they began again to torture him, he might have found some method to escape from this degrading and fatal misadventure. Presently, sure enough, and while his captors were still discussing what to do with him, he took heart of grace, and, with a pretty steady voice, addressed them. "'My masters,' he began, "'are ye gone clean foolish? Here hath heaven put into your hands as pretty an occasion to grow rich?' as ever shipmen had, such as ye might make thirty oversea adventures and not find again. And by the mass I what do ye? Beat me! Nay, so would an angry child. But for long-headed tarjons, that fear not fire nor water, and that love gold as they love beef, methinks ye are not wise. Aye, said Tom, now you are trust you would cousin us. Cousin you? repeated Dick. Nay, if ye be fools, it would be easy. But if ye be shrewd fellows, as I trow ye are, you can see plainly where your interest lies. When I took your ship from you, we were many, we were well clad and armed. But now, bethink you a little, who mustered that array? One incontestably that hath much gold. And if he, being already rich, continueth to hunt after more even in the face of storms, bethink you once more, shall there not be a treasure somewhere hidden? 
"'What meaneth he?' asked one of the men. "'Why, if ye have lost an old skiff and a few jugs of vinegary wine,' continued Dick, "'forget them for the trash they are, and do ye rather buckle to an adventure worth the name, that shall in twelve hours make or mar you for ever. But take me up from where I lie, and let us go somewhere near at hand and talk across a flagon, for I am sore and frozen.' and my mouth is half among the snow. "'He seeks but to cousin us,' said Tom, contemptuously. "'Cousin, cousin!' cried the third man. "'I would I could see the man that could cousin me. He were a cousiner indeed. Nay, I was not born yesterday. I can see a church when it hath a steeple on it. And, for my part, gossip Arblaster, Methinks there is some sense in this young man. Shall we go hear him, indeed? Say, shall we go hear him? I would look gladly on a pottle of strong ale, good Master Piret, returned Arblaster. How say ye, Tom? But then the wallet is empty. I will pay, said the other. I will pay. I would fain see this matter out. I do believe, upon my conscience, there is gold in it. Nay, if you get again to drinking, all is lost, cried Tom. Gossip, Arblaster, you suffer your fellow to have too much liberty, returned Master Perret. Would you be led by a hired man? Fie, fie! Peace, fellow, said Arblaster, addressing Tom. Will you put your oar in? truly a fine pass when the crew is to correct the skipper well then go your way said tom i wash my hands of you set him then upon his feet said master perret i know a privy place where we may drink and discourse if i am to walk my friends you must set my feet at liberty said dick when he had once more been planted upright like a post <laughs> he saith true laughed perret truly he could not walk accoutred as he is give it a slit out with your knife and slit it gossip even arblaster paused at this proposal but as his companion continued to insist and dick had the sense to keep the merest wooden indifference of expression and only shrugged his shoulders over the delay the skipper consented at last and cut the cords which tied his prisoner's feet and legs. Not only did this enable Dick to walk, but the whole network of his bonds being proportionately loosened, he felt the arm behind his back begin to move more freely, and could hope, with time and trouble, to entirely disengage it. So much he owed already to the owlish silliness and greed of Master Perret. That worthy now assumed the lead and conducted them to the very same rude alehouse where Lawless had taken Arblaster on the day of the gale. It was now quite deserted. The fire was a pile of red embers, radiating the most ardent heat, and when they had chosen their places, and the landlord had set before them a measure of mulled ale, both Piret and Arblaster stretched forth their legs, and squared their elbows like men bent upon a pleasant hour. The table at which they sat, like all the others in the alehouse, consisted of a heavy square board, set on a pair of barrels, and each of the four curiously assorted cronies sat at one side of the square, 
Pierret facing our blaster, and Dick opposite to the common sailor. "'And now, young man,' said Pierret, "'to your tale. It doth appear, indeed, that ye have somewhat abused our gossip Arblaster, but what then? Make it up to him. Show him but this chance to become wealthy, and I will go pledge he will forgive you.' So far Dick had spoken pretty much at random but it was now necessary, under the supervision of six eyes, to invent and tell some marvellous story, and, if it were possible, get back into his hands the all-important signet. To squander time was the first necessity. The longer his stay lasted, the more would his captors drink, and the surer should he be when he attempted his escape. Well, Dick was not much of an inventor, and what he told was pretty much the tale of Ali Baba, with Shoreby and Tunstall Forest substituted for the East, and the treasures of the cavern rather exaggerated than diminished. As the reader is aware, it is an excellent story, and has but one drawback, that it is not true, and so, as these three simple shipmen now heard it for the first time, their eyes stood out of their faces, and their mouths gaped like codfish at a fishmonger's. Pretty soon a second measure of mulled ale was called for, and while Dick was still artfully spinning out the incidents, a third followed the second. Here was the position of the parties towards the end. Our blaster, three parts drunk and one half asleep, hung helpless on his stool. Even Tom had been much delighted with the tale and his vigilance had abated in proportion. Meanwhile Dick had gradually wormed his right arm clear of its bonds, and was ready to risk all. "'And so,' said Pierret, "'you are one of these?' "'I was made so,' replied Dick, "'against my will. But an I could but get a sack or two of gold coin to my share, I should be a fool indeed to continue dwelling in a filthy cave.' and standing shot and buffet like a soldier. Here be we four. Good. Let us then go forth into the forest to-morrow ere the sun be up. Could we come honestly by a donkey, it were better. But an we cannot, we have our four strong backs, and I warrant me we shall come home staggering. Pierret licked his lips. And this magic, he said, this password— whereby the cave is opened. How call ye it, friend? Nay, none know the word but the three chiefs, returned Dick. But here is your great good fortune, that on this very evening I should be the bearer of a spell to open it. It is a thing not trusted twice a year beyond the captain's wallet. A spell, said our blaster, half awakening, and squinting upon Dick with one eye. I ruined thee. No spells. I be a good Christian. Ask my men Tom else. Nay, but this is white magic, said Dick. It doth not with the devil, only the powers of numbers, herbs, and planets. Aye, aye, said Pierret. Tis but white magic, gossip. There is no sin therein, I do assure you. But proceed, good youth, this spell, in what should it consist? Nay, that I will incontinently show you, answered Dick. Have ye there the ring ye took from my finger? 
Good. Now hold it forth before you by the extreme finger ends, at the arm's length, and over against the shining of these embers. Tis so exactly. Thus then is the spell. With a haggard glance, Dick saw the coast was clear between him and the door. He put up an internal prayer. Then, whipping forth his arm, he made but one snatch of the ring, and at the same instant, levering up the table, he sent it bodily over upon the seaman Tom. He, poor soul, went down bawling under the ruins, and before Arblaster understood that anything was wrong, or Perret could collect his dazzled wits, Dick had run to the door and escaped into the moonlit night. The moon, which now rode in the mid-heavens, and the extreme whiteness of the snow, made the open ground about the harbour bright as day, and young Shelton leaping, with kilted robe, among the lumber, was a conspicuous figure from afar. Tom and Perret followed him with shouts. From every drinking-shop there were joined by others whom their cries aroused, and presently a whole fleet of sailors was in full pursuit. But Jack Ashore was a bad runner, even in the fifteenth century, and Dick, besides, had a start, which he rapidly improved, until, as he drew near the entrance of a narrow lane, he even paused and looked laughingly behind him. Upon the white floor of snow all the shipmen of Shoreby came clustering in an inky mass, and tailing out rearward in isolated clumps. Every man was shouting or screaming, every man was gesticulating with both arms in air. Someone was continually falling, and to complete the picture, when one fell, a dozen would fall upon the top of him. The confused mass of sound which they rolled up as high as to the moon was partly comical and partly terrifying to the fugitive whom they were hunting. In itself it was impotent, for he made sure no seaman in the port could run him down. But the mere volume of noise, in so far as it must awake all the sleepers in Shoreby, and bring all the skulking sentries to the street, did really threaten him with danger in the front. So, spying a dark doorway at a corner, he whipped briskly into it, and let the uncouth hunt go by him, still shouting and gesticulating, and all red with hurry and white with tumbles in the snow. It was a long while, indeed, before this great invasion of the town by the harbour came to an end, and it was long before silence was restored. For long, lost sailors were still to be heard pounding and shouting through the streets in all directions and in every quarter of the town. Quarrels followed, sometimes among themselves, sometimes with the men of the patrols. Knives were drawn, blows given and received, and more than one dead body remained behind upon the snow. When, a full hour later, the last seaman returned grumblingly to the harbour-side and his particular tavern, it may fairly be questioned if he had ever known what manner of man he was pursuing, but it was absolutely sure that he had now forgotten. By next morning there were many strange stories flying, and a little while after, the legend of the devil's nocturnal visit was an article of faith with all the lads of Shoreby. But the return of the last seaman did not, even yet, set free young Shelton from his cold imprisonment in the doorway. For some time after there was a great activity of patrols, and special parties came forth to make the round of the place, and report to one or other of the great lords, whose slumbers had been thus unusually broken. 
The night was already well spent before Dick ventured from his hiding-place and came, safe and sound, but aching with cold and bruises, to the door of the goat and bagpipes. As the law required, there was neither fire nor candle in the house, but he groped his way into a corner of the icy guest-room, found an end of a blanket, which he hitched around his shoulders, and creeping close to the nearest sleeper, was soon lost in slumber. End of chapter. Book Five, Chapter One of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Five, entitled Crookback. Chapter One The Shrill Trumpet. Very early the next morning, before the first peep of the day, Dick arose, changed his garments, armed himself once more like a gentleman, and set forth for Lawless's den in the forest. There it will be remembered he had left Lord Foxham's papers, and to get these and be back in time for the tryst with the young Duke of Gloucester could only be managed by an early start and the most vigorous walking. The frost was more rigorous than ever, the air windless and dry and stinging to the nostril. The moon had gone down, but the stars were still bright and numerous, and the reflection from the snow was clear and cheerful. There was no need for a lamp to walk by, nor, in that still but ringing air, the least temptation to delay. Dick had crossed the greater part of the open ground between Shoreby and the forest, and had reached the bottom of the little hill, some hundred yards below the cross of St. Bride, when— through the stillness of the black morn, there rang forth the note of a trumpet, so shrill, clear, and piercing, that he thought he had never heard the match of it for audibility. It was blown once, and then hurriedly a second time, and then the clash of steel succeeded. At this young Shelton pricked his ears, and drawing his sword, ran forward up the hill. Presently he came in sight of the cross, and was aware of a most fierce encounter raging on the road before it. There were seven or eight assailants, and but one to keep head against them, but so active and dexterous was this one, so desperately did he charge and scatter his opponents, so deftly keep his footing on the ice, that already, before Dick could intervene, he had slain one, wounded another, and kept the whole in check. Still, it was by a miracle that he continued his defence, and at any moment, any accident, the least slip of foot or error of hand, his life would be a forfeit. "'Hold ye well, sir, here is help!' cried Richard, and forgetting that he was alone, and that the cry was somewhat irregular, "'To the arrow! To the arrow!' he shouted, as he fell upon the rear of the assailants. These were stout fellows also, for they gave not an inch at this surprise, but faced about, and fell with astonishing fury upon Dick." Four against one, the steel flashed about him in the starlight. The sparks flew fiercely. One of the men opposed to him fell. In the stir of the fight he hardly knew why. Then he himself was struck across the head, and though the steel cap below his hood protected him, the blow beat him down upon one knee, with a brain whirling like a windmill sail. Meanwhile the man whom he had come to rescue, instead of joining in the conflict, 
had, on the first sign of intervention, leaped aback and blown again, and yet more urgently and loudly, on that same shrill-voiced trumpet that began the alarm. Next moment, indeed, his foes were on him, and he was once more charging and fleeing, leaping, stabbing, dropping to his knee, and using indifferently sword and dagger, foot and hand, with the same unshaken courage and feverish energy and speed. But that ear-piercing summons had been heard at last. There was a muffled rushing in the snow, and in a good hour for Dick, who saw the sword-points glitter already at his throat, there poured forth out of the wood upon both sides a disorderly torrent of mounted men-at-arms, each cased in iron, and with visor lowered, each bearing his lance in rest, or his sword bared and raised, and each carrying, so to speak, a passenger, in the shape of an archer or page, who leaped one after another from their perches, and had presently doubled the array. The original assailants, seeing themselves outnumbered and surrounded, threw down their arms without a word. "'Seize me, these fellows!' said the hero of the trumpet, and when his order had been obeyed, he drew near to Dick and looked him in the face. Dick, returning the scrutiny, was surprised to find in one who had displayed such strength, skill, and energy, a lad no older than himself, slightly deformed, with one shoulder higher than the other, and of a pale, painful, and distorted countenance. The eyes, however, were very clear and bold. "'Sir,' said this lad, "'you came in good time for me, and none too early.' "'My lord,' returned Dick, with a faint sense that he was in the presence of a great personage. Ye are yourself so marvellous a good swordsman, that I believe ye had managed them single-handed. Howbeit, it was certainly well for me that your men delayed no longer than they did. "'How knew ye who I was?' demanded the stranger. "'Even now, my lord,' Dick answered, "'I am ignorant of whom I speak with.' "'Is it so?' asked the other. "'And yet you threw yourself head-first into this unequal battle.' "'I saw one man valiantly contending against many,' replied Dick, "'and I had thought myself dishonoured not to bear him aid.' A singular sneer played about the young nobleman's mouth as he made answer. "'These are very brave words. But to the more essential, are ye Lancaster or York?' "'My lord, I make no secret. I am clear for York,' Dick answered. "'By the mass!' replied the other. "'It is well for you.' And so saying, he turned towards one of his followers. "'Let me see,' he continued in the same sneering and cruel tones, "'let me see a clean end of these brave gentlemen. Trust me them up.' There were but five survivors of the attacking party. Archers seized them by the arms, they were hurried to the borders of the wood, and each placed below a tree of suitable dimension. The rope was adjusted. An archer, carrying the end of it, hastily clambered overhead, and before a minute was over, and without a word passing upon either hand, the five men were swinging by the neck. "'And now,' cried the deformed leader, "'back to your posts, and when I summon you next, be readier to attend.' "'My Lord Duke,' said one man, "'beseech you, tarry not here alone. Keep but a handful of lances at your hand.' "'Fellow!' said the duke, I have forborne to chide you for your slowness. Cross me not, therefore. I trust my hand and arm for all that I be crooked. You were backward when the trumpet sounded, and ye are now too forward with your counsels. 
But it is ever so, last with a lance and first with tongue. Let it be reversed. And with a gesture that was not without a sort of dangerous nobility, he waved them off. The footmen climbed again to their seats behind the men-at-arms, and the whole party moved slowly away and disappeared in twenty different directions under the cover of the forest. The day was by this time beginning to break, and the stars to fade. The first grey glimmer of dawn shone upon the countenances of the two young men, who now turned once more to face each other. "'Here,' said the Duke, "'ye have seen my vengeance, which is, like my blade, both sharp and ready. But I would not have you, for all Christendom, suppose me thankless. You that came to my aid with a good sword and a better courage, unless that ye recoil from my misshapenness, come to my heart.' And so saying, the young leader held out his arms for an embrace. In the bottom of his heart Dick already entertained a great terror and some hatred for the man whom he had rescued, but the invitation was so worded that it would not have been merely discourteous but cruel to refuse or hesitate, and he hastened to comply. "'And now, my lord duke,' he said, when he had regained his freedom, "'do I suppose aright? Are ye my lord duke of Gloucester?' "'I am Richard of Gloucester,' returned the other. "'And you! How call they you?' Dick told him his name, and presented Lord Foxham's signet, which the Duke immediately recognized. "'Ye come too soon,' he said. "'But why should I complain? Ye are like me, that was here at watch two hours before the day. But this is the first sally of mine arms. Upon this adventure, Master Shelton, shall I make or mar the quality of my renown. There lie mine enemies.' under two old skilled captains, Risingham and Brackley, well posted for strength, I do believe, but yet upon two sides without retreat, enclosed betwixt the sea, the harbour, and the river. Methinks, Shelton, here were a great blow to be stricken, and we could strike it silently and suddenly. "'I do think so indeed,' cried Dick, warming. "'Have ye my Lord Foxham's notes?' inquired the Duke. And then Dick, having explained how he was without them for the moment, made himself bold to offer information every jot as good of his own knowledge. And for mine own part, my lord duke, he added, and ye have men enough, I would fall on even at this present. For look ye, at the peep of the day the watches of the night are over, but by day they keep neither watch nor ward, only scour the outskirts with horsemen. Now then— when the night watch is already unarmed, and the rest are at their morning cup, now were the time to break them. "'How many do you count?' asked Gloucester. "'They number not two thousand,' Dick replied. "'I have seven hundred in the woods behind us,' said the Duke. Seven hundred follow from Ketley, and will be here anon. Behind these, and further, are four hundred more, and my Lord Foxham hath five hundred half a day from here at Holywood.' Shall we attend their coming, or fall on? My lord, said Dick, when ye hang these five poor rogues ye did decide the question. Churls, although they were, in these uneasy times they will be lacked and looked for, and the alarm be given. Therefore, my lord, if ye do count upon the advantage of a surprise, ye have not, in my poor opinion, one whole hour in front of you. I do think so indeed, 
returned Crookback. "'Well, before an hour ye shall be in the thick on it, winning spurs. A swift man to Holywood, carrying Lord Foxham's signet. Another along the road to speed my laggards. Nay, Shelton, by the rood, it may be done.' Therewith he once more set his trumpet to his lips and blew. This time he was not long kept waiting. In a moment the open space about the cross was filled with horse and foot. Richard of Gloucester took his place upon the steps, and dispatched messenger after messenger to hasten the concentration of the seven hundred men that lay hidden in the immediate neighbourhood among the woods, and before a quarter of an hour had passed, all his dispositions being taken, he put himself at their head, and began to move down the hill toward Shoreby. His plan was simple. He was to seize a quarter of the town of Shoreby lying on the right hand of the high road, and make his position good there in the narrow lanes until his reinforcements followed. If Lord Risingham chose to retreat, Richard would follow upon his rear, and take him between two fires, or, if he preferred to hold the town, he would be shut in a trap, there to be gradually overwhelmed by force of numbers. There was but one danger, but that was immediate and great. Gloucester's seven hundred might be rolled up and cut to pieces in the first encounter, and, to avoid this, it was needful to make the surprise of their arrival as complete as possible. The footmen, therefore, were all once more taken up behind the riders, and Dick had the signal honour meted out to him of mounting behind Gloucester himself, for as far as there was any cover the troops moved slowly, and when they came near the end of the trees that lined the highway, stopped to breathe and reconnoitre. The sun was now well up, shining with a frosty brightness out of a yellow halo, and right over against the luminary, Shoreby, a field of snowy roofs and ruddy gables, was rolling up its columns of morning smoke. Gloucester turned round to Dick. "'In that poor place,' he said, "'where people are cooking breakfast, either you shall gain your spurs, and I begin a life of mighty honour and glory in the world's eye, or both of us, as I conceive it, shall fall dead and be unheard of. Two Richards are we. Well, then, Richard Shelton, they shall be heard about, these two. Their swords shall not ring more loudly on men's helmets than their names shall ring in people's ears. Dick was astonished at so great a hunger after fame, expressed with so great vehemence of voice and language, and he answered very sensibly and quietly that, for his part, he promised he would do his duty— and doubted not of victory if everyone did the like. By this time the horses were well breathed, and the leader holding up his sword and giving rein, the whole troop of chargers broke into the gallop and thundered, with their double load of fighting men, down the remainder of the hill, and across the snow-covered plain that still divided them from Shoreby. End of chapter Book Five, Chapter Two of the Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Five, Chapter Two The Battle of Shoreby. The whole distance to be crossed was not above a quarter of a mile, but they had no sooner debouched beyond the cover of the trees 
than they were aware of people fleeing and screaming in the snowy meadows upon either hand. Almost at the same moment a great rumour began to arise, and spread, and grow continually louder in the town, and they were not yet halfway to the nearest house before the bells began to ring backward from the steeple. The young duke ground his teeth together. By these so early signals of alarm he feared to find his enemies prepared, and if he failed to gain a footing in the town, he knew that his small party would soon be broken and exterminated in the open. In the town, however, the Lancastrians were far from being in so good a posture. It was as Dick had said. The night guard had already doffed their harness, the rest were still hanging, unlatched, unbraced, all unprepared for battle, about their quarters, and in the whole of Shoreby there were not, perhaps, fifty men fully armed, or fifty chargers ready to be mounted. The beating of the bells, the terrifying summons of men who ran about the streets crying and beating upon the doors, aroused in an incredibly short space at least two score out of that half-hundred. These got speedily to horse, and, the alarm still flying wild and contrary, galloped in different directions. Thus it befell that, when Richard of Gloucester reached the first house of Shoreby, he was met in the mouth of the street by a mere handful of lances, whom he swept before his onset as the storm chases the bark. A hundred paces into the town, Dick Shelton touched the duke's arm. The duke, in answer, gathered his reins, put the shrill trumpet to his mouth, and, blowing a concerted point, turned to the right hand out of the direct advance. Swerving like a single rider, his whole command turned after him, and still, at the full gallop of the chargers, swept up the narrow by-street. Only the last score of riders drew rein and faced about in the entrance. The footmen, whom they carried behind them, leaped at the same instant to the earth, and began, some to bend their bows, and others to break into and secure the houses upon either hand. Surprised at this sudden change of direction, and daunted by the firm front of the rearguard, the few Lancastrians, after a momentary consultation, turned and rode farther into town to seek for reinforcements. The quarter of the town upon which, by the advice of Dick, Richard of Gloucester had now seized, consisted of five small streets of poor and ill-inhabited houses, occupying a very gentle eminence, and lying open towards the back. The five streets being each secured by a good guard, the reserve would thus occupy the centre, out of shot, and yet ready to carry aid wherever it was needed. Such was the poorness of the neighbourhood that none of the Lancastrian lords, and but few of their retainers, had been lodged therein, and the inhabitants, with one accord, deserted their houses and fled, squalling, along the streets or over garden walls. In the centre, where the five ways all met, a somewhat ill-favoured alehouse displayed the sign of the checkers, and here the Duke of Gloucester chose his headquarters for the day. To Dick he assigned the guard of one of the five streets. "'Go,' he said, "'win your spurs. Win glory for me, one Richard for another. I tell you, if I rise, he shall rise by the same ladder. Go,' he added, shaking him by the hand. But as soon as Dick was gone, he turned to a little shabby archer at his elbow. "'Go, Dutton, and that right speedily,' he added. "'Follow that lad.' If ye find him faithful, ye answer for his safety, a head for a head. 
woe unto you if you return without him. But if he be faithless, or for one instant ye misdoubt him, stab him from behind. In the meanwhile Dick hastened to secure his post. The street he had to guard was very narrow, and closely lined with houses, which projected and overhung the roadway. But narrow and dark as it was, since it opened upon the market-place of the town, the main issue of the battle would probably fall to be decided on that spot. The market-place was full of townspeople fleeing in disorder, but there was as yet no sign of any foeman ready to attack, and Dick judged he had some time before him to make ready his defence. The two houses at the end stood deserted, with open doors, as the inhabitants had left them in their flight, and from these he had the furniture hastily tossed forth and piled into a barrier in the entry of the lane. A hundred men were placed at his disposal, and of these he threw the more part into the houses, where they might lie in shelter and deliver their arrows from the windows. With the rest, under his own immediate eye, he lined the barricade. Meanwhile, the utmost uproar and confusion had continued to prevail throughout the town, and what with the hurried clashing of bells, the sounding of trumpets, the swift movement of bodies of horse, the cries of the commanders, and the shrieks of women, the noise was almost deafening to the ear. Presently, little by little, the tumult began to subside, and soon after files of men in armour and bodies of archers began to assemble and form in line of battle in the market-place. A large portion of this body were in Murray and Blue, and in the mounted knight who ordered their array, Dick recognised Sir Daniel Brackley. Then there befell a long pause, which was followed by the almost simultaneous sounding of four trumpets from four different quarters of the town. A fifth rang an answer from the market-place, and at the same moment the files began to move, and a shower of arrows rattled about the barricade, and sounded like blows upon the walls of the two flanking houses. The attack had begun, by a common signal, on all the five issues of the quarter. Gloucester was beleaguered upon every side, and Dick judged, if he could make good his post, he must rely entirely on the hundred men of his command. Seven volleys of arrows followed one upon the other and in the very thick of the discharges Dick was touched from behind upon the arm, and found a page holding out to him a leathern jack, strengthened with bright plates of metal. "'It is from my lord of Gloucester,' said the page. "'He hath observed, Sir Richard, that you went unarmed.' Dick, with a glow at his heart at being so addressed, got to his feet, and, with the assistance of the page, donned the defensive coat." Even as he did so, two arrows rattled harmlessly upon the plates, and a third struck down the page, mortally wounded, at his feet. Meantime the whole body of the enemy had been steadily drawing nearer across the market-place, and by this time were so close at hand that Dick gave the order to return their shot. Immediately, from behind the barrier and from the windows of the houses, a counter-blast of arrows sped, carrying death. But the Lancastrians, as if they had but waited for a signal, shouted loudly in answer, and began to close at a run upon the barrier, the horsemen still hanging back, with visors lowered. Then followed an obstinate and deadly struggle, hand to hand. The assailants, wielding their falchions with one hand, strove with the other to drag down the structure of the barricade. On the other side the parts were reversed, 
and the defenders exposed themselves like madmen to protect their rampart. So for some minutes the contest raged almost in silence, friend and foe falling one upon another. But it is always the easier to destroy, and when a single note upon the tucket recalled the attacking party from this desperate service, much of the barricade had been removed piecemeal, and the whole fabric had sunk to half its height, and tottered to a general fall. And now the footmen in the marketplace fell back at a run on every side. The horsemen, who had been standing in a line too deep, wheeled suddenly and made their flank into their front, and as swift as a striking adder, the long steel-clad column was launched upon the ruinous barricade. Of the first two horsemen, one fell, rider and steed, and was ridden down by his companions. The second leaped clean upon the summit of the rampart, transpiercing an archer with his lance. Almost in the same instant he was dragged from the saddle, and his horse dispatched. And then the full weight and impetus of the charge burst upon and scattered the defenders. The men-at-arms, surmounting their fallen comrades, and carried onward by the fury of their onslaught, dashed through Dick's broken line and poured thundering up the lane beyond, as a stream bestrides and pours across a broken dam. Yet was the fight not over. Still, in the narrow jaws of the entrance, Dick and a few survivors plied their bills like woodmen, and already, across the width of the passage, there had been formed a second, a higher, and a more effectual rampart of fallen men and disemboweled horses, lashing in the agonies of death. Baffled by this fresh obstacle, the remainder of the cavalry fell back, and as, at the sight of this movement, the flight of arrows redoubled from the casements of the houses, their retreat had, for a moment, almost degenerated into flight. Almost at the same time, those who had crossed the barricade and charged farther up the street, being met before the door of the checkers by the formidable hunchback and the whole reserve of the Yorkists, began to come scattering backward, in the excess of disarray and terror. Dick and his fellows faced about, fresh men poured out of the houses, a cruel blast of arrows met the fugitives full in the face, while Gloucester was already riding down their rear. In the inside of a minute and a half, there was no living Lancastrian in the street. Then, and not till then, did Dick hold up his reeking blade and give the word to cheer. Meanwhile Gloucester dismounted from his horse and came forward to inspect the post. His face was as pale as linen, but his eyes shone in his head like some strange jewel, and his voice, when he spoke, was hoarse and broken with the exultation of battle and success. He looked at the rampart, which neither friend nor foe could now approach without precaution, so fiercely did the horses struggle in the throes of death, and at the sight of that great carnage he smiled upon one side. "'Dispatch these horses,' he said. "'They keep you from your vantage. "'Richard Shelton,' he added, "'ye have pleased me. Kneel.' The Lancastrians had already resumed their archery, and the shafts fell thick in the mouth of the street. But the Duke, minding them not at all, deliberately drew his sword and dubbed Richard a knight upon the spot. "'And now, Sir Richard,' he continued, if that you see Lord Risingham, send me an express upon the instant. Were it your last man, let me hear of it incontinently. I had rather venture the post than lose my stroke at him. For mark me, all of ye," he added, raising his voice, 
If Earl Risingham fall by another hand than mine, I shall count this victory a defeat. My lord duke, said one of the attendants, is your grace not weary of exposing his dear life unneedfully? Why tarry we here? Catesby, returned the duke, here is the battle, not elsewhere. The rest are but feigned onslaughts. Here must we vanquish. And for the exposure, if ye were an ugly hunchback, and the children gecked at you upon the street, ye would count your body cheaper, and an hour of glory worth a life. Howbeit, if ye will, let us ride on and visit the other posts. Sir Richard here, my namesake, he shall still hold this entry, where he wadeth to the ankles in hot blood. Him can we trust. But mark it, Sir Richard, ye are not yet done. The worst is yet to ward. Sleep not. He came right up to young Shelton, looking him hard in the eyes, and taking his hand in both of his, gave it so extreme a squeeze that the blood had nearly spurted. Dick quailed before his eyes. The insane excitement, the courage, and the cruelty that he read therein filled him with dismay about the future. This young duke's was indeed a gallant spirit, to ride foremost in the ranks of war. But after the battle, in the days of peace, and in the circle of his trusted friends, that mind, it was to be dreaded, would continue to bring forth the fruits of death. End of chapter Book Five, Chapter Three of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Five, Chapter Three The Battle of Shoreby Concluded. Dick, once more left to his own counsels, began to look about him. The arrow-shot had somewhat slackened. On all sides the enemy were falling back, and the greater part of the market-place was now left empty. The snow here trampled into orange mud, there splashed with gore, scattered all over with dead men and horses, and bristling thick with feathered arrows. On his own side the loss had been cruel. The jaws of the little street and the ruins of the barricade were heaped with the dead and dying, and out of the hundred men with whom he had begun the battle, there were not seventy left who could still stand to arms. At the same time the day was passing. The first reinforcements might be looked for to arrive at any moment, and the Lancastrians, already shaken by the result of their desperate but unsuccessful onslaught, were in an ill temper to support a fresh invader. There was a dial in the wall of one of the two flanking houses, and this, in the frosty winter sunshine, indicated ten of the forenoon. Dick turned to the man who was at his elbow, a little insignificant archer, binding a cut in his arm. "'It was well fought,' he said. "'And, by my sooth, they will not charge us twice.' "'Sir,' said the little archer, "'ye have fought right well for York, and better for yourself.' Never hath man in so brief space prevailed so greatly on the duke's affections. That he should have entrusted such a post to one he knew not is a marvel. But look to your head, Sir Richard. If ye be vanquished, ay, if ye give way one foot's breath, 
axe or cord shall punish it, and I am set, if you do aught doubtful, I will tell you honestly, here to stab you from behind. Dick looked at the little man in amaze. You, he cried, and from behind? It is right so, returned the archer, and because I like not the affair, I tell it you. You must make the post good, Sir Richard, at your peril. Oh, our crookback is a bold blade and a good warrior, but whether in cold blood or in hot, he will have all things done exact to his commandment. If any fail or hinder, they shall die the death. Now by the saints, cried Richard, is this so? And will men follow such a leader? Nay, they follow him gleefully, replied the other. For if he be exact to punish, he is most open-handed to reward. And if he spare not the blood and sweat of others, he is ever liberal of his own, still in the first front of battle, still the last to sleep. He will go far, will crookback Dick o' Gloucester. The young knight, if he had before been brave and vigilant, was now all the more inclined to watchfulness and courage. His sudden favour, he began to perceive, had brought perils in its train. And he turned from the archer, and once more scanned anxiously the market-place. It lay empty as before. "'I like not this quietude,' he said. "'Doubtless they prepare us some surprise.' And, as if in answer to his remark, the archers began once more to advance against the barricade, and the arrows to fall thick. But there was something hesitating in the attack. They came not on roundly, but seemed rather to await a further signal. Dick looked uneasily about him, spying for a hidden danger, and sure enough, about halfway up the little street, a door was suddenly opened from within, and the house continued for some seconds, and both by door and window, to disgorge a torrent of Lancastrian archers. These, as they leaped down, hurriedly stood to their ranks, bent their bows, and proceeded to pour upon Dick's rear a flight of arrows. At the same time, the assailants in the market-place redoubled their shot, and began to close in stoutly upon the barricade. Dick called down his whole command out of the houses, and facing them both ways, and encouraging their valour both by word and gesture, returned as best he could the double shower of shafts that fell about his post. Meanwhile, house after house was opened in the street, and the Lancastrians continued to pour out of the doors and leap down from the windows, shouting victory, until the number of enemies upon Dick's rear was almost equal to the number in his face. It was plain that he could hold the post no longer. What was worse, even if he could have held it, it had now become useless, and the whole Yorkist army lay in a posture of helplessness upon the brink of a complete disaster. The men behind him formed the vital flaw in the general defence, and it was upon these that Dick turned, charging at the head of his men. So vigorous was the attack, that the Lancastrian archers gave ground and staggered, and, at last, breaking their ranks, began to crowd back into the houses from which they had so recently and so vaingloriously sallied. Meanwhile the men from the market-place had swarmed across the undefended barricade, and fell on hotly upon the other side, and Dick must once again face about, and proceed to drive them back. Once again the spirit of his men prevailed, they cleared the street in a triumphant style, 
but even as they did so, the others issued again out of the houses and took them a third time upon the rear. The Yorkists began to be scattered. Several times Dick found himself alone among his foes and plying his bright sword for life. Several times he was conscious of a hurt, and meanwhile the fight swayed to and fro in the street without determinate result. Suddenly Dick was aware of a great trumpeting about the outskirts of the town. The war-cry of York began to be rolled up to heaven, as by many and triumphant voices, and at the same time the men in front of him began to give ground rapidly, streaming out of the street and back upon the market-place. Someone gave the word to fly. Trumpets were blown distractedly, some for a rally, some to charge. It was plain that a great blow had been struck, and the Lancastrians were thrown, at least for the moment, into full disorder and some degree of panic. And then, like a theatre trick, there followed the last act of Shoreby battle. The men in front of Richard turned tail, like a dog that has been whistled home, and fled like the wind. At the same moment there came through the marketplace a storm of horsemen, fleeing and pursuing, the Lancastrians turning back to strike with a sword, the Yorkists riding them down at the point of the lance. Conspicuous in the melee, Dick beheld the crookback. He was already giving a foretaste of that furious valour and skill to cut his way across the ranks of war, which, years afterwards, upon the field of Bosworth, and when he was stained with crimes, almost sufficed to change the fortunes of the day and the destiny of the English throne. Evading, striking, riding down, he so forced and so manoeuvred his strong horse, so aptly defended himself, and so liberally scattered death to his opponents, that he was now far ahead of the foremost of his knights, hewing his way, with a truncheon of a bloody sword, to where Lord Risingham was rallying the bravest. A moment more, and they met, the tall, splendid, and famous warrior against the deformed and sickly boy. Yet Shelton had never a doubt of the result, and when the fight next opened for a moment, the figure of the earl had disappeared. But still, in the first of the danger, Crookback Dick was launching his big horse and plying the truncheon of his sword. Thus, by Shelton's courage in holding the mouth of the street against the first attack, and by the opportune arrival of his seven hundred reinforcements, the lad, who was afterwards to be handed down to the execration of posterity under the name of Richard III, had won his first considerable fight. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.